Kronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes, written by William Hearn. Narrated by the author. Episode 5. Toronto. Chapter 28. Sunday Afternoon. Another weekend, another cross-Atlantic plane flight. This is the third that I've made in four weeks. Many more of these and I'm expecting the airline to present me with a commemorative plaque. I'm sure that I'm single-handedly dragging it into profitability through all of these last-minute bookings. After Buckeridge and I had hung up, I called Faser to give her the good news. We agreed to head out to Toronto and continue the search from there. While I can head over immediately, Faser, due to the late stage of her pregnancy, must wait until Monday to fly as she is first to get a permission note from her doctor. Her sister will accompany her. I also attempted to call Nadia. As before, all I got was her voicemail. I left a short message about our breakthrough and asked her to call me back. Thirty minutes later, my phone rang. It was Nadia. Despite it being 5am on a Sunday, she was apparently keeping current with her voicemail. The nocturnal habits of hackers, I guess. Nadia was equally excited about the news. She said that she would immediately book a flight over to Toronto and meet up with us there. It's good to hear your voice, she said as we ended the call. I can't wait to see you again, Tom. I resist the impulse to retort that I wished she had felt the same about returning a few of my earlier calls. I told myself that there would be plenty of time in Toronto to have a proper talk with her. For the first time in weeks, I felt moderately optimistic, good even, for a couple of hours. That positive feeling lasts until an hour into the flight when I pull up on my band a map of the Toronto metropolitan area. It's huge. Never having visited the city, or anywhere else in Canada for that matter, I never knew that it was so big. Wikipedia tells me that it's the fourth largest metropolitan area in North America, with the city spread over 240 square miles and a population approaching 10 million. Still, I console myself, that's an improvement over having a search space the size of the entire North American continent. Toronto's a big multicultural city, so Max with his British accent, won't seem out of place. Hopefully, he feels safe in the city, hidden. The longer he stays in one place, the better our chances of locating him. I switch off my band and sit back in my seat, staring out at the clouds. I start to think about how we are going to track him down. There's going to be five of us. Buckeridge has also volunteered to fly in and help us. But Toronto is such a big city we're still going to need a huge slice of luck if we're going to find Max. Chapter 29. Monday Morning I sit alone in a coffee shop on Young Street, waiting. It's still dark outside and the morning commuter rush is only just beginning. I've been up for several hours as I'm still running on UK time. I am already on my third coffee of the day. It's a grey morning in Toronto, with thick, heavy stratus clouds filling the sky. It's cold too, not much above freezing. 
the first snowfall of the season doesn't feel far away. I'm already regretting not bringing a warmer coat. Buckeridge took the red eye from the west coast and is now heading to meet with me, straight from the airport. Faser is seeing her doctor this morning, and, assuming that he has no concerns, will take the afternoon flight to Toronto, arriving this evening. Nadia's flight got in yesterday evening. I had IM'd her with the details of our rendezvous point, but didn't get an acknowledgement back. She sure is selective as to when she communicates. Toronto is even bigger and more sprawling than I had imagined. After arriving at Pearson International, I taken a bus into the centre of the city. The huge express highways, I counted six lanes in each direction from the airport to the downtown core, were both impressive and intimidating. Navigating towards downtown isn't exactly a challenge here. Just head towards the massive CN Tower, visible from just about anywhere in the city, and probably much of Canada. Toronto looks a lot like many American cities, just a lot cleaner. I see very little graffiti and even less litter. And the people seem politer too. Though why Canadians feel that it is always obligatory to acknowledge a thank you with a you're welcome is quite beyond me. On the table in the booth, I spread out a large paper map of the Toronto metropolitan area. Finding Max in such a large area is going to be challenging, but not impossible. I might not be able to outsmart Max, but I can be methodical. Based on the content of Max's searches, he seems to be using public Wi-Fi hotspots to connect to the internet. Assuming that he is being careful, he will be moving regularly from venue to venue. None of his internet searches seem to occur during evening or nighttime hours, so it's likely that he isn't doing any research from wherever he is sleeping. I start to compile a list of potential venues that Max might be visiting. Coffee shops, shopping malls, fast food restaurants, libraries, train stations, hotels and the like. As I write down my list, I enter the search terms into the map app of my band to see how many locations there are for each. By the time I've finished, the list of the number of potential spots is over a thousand. Even once I narrow the search to exclude non-Wi-Fi enabled locations, there are still 700. If Max really is hopping from one place to another, he'd be able to do this for several years without having to revisit one. Then again, he probably isn't moving that far afield, I think to myself. Judging from his searches for bus and train timetables, it doesn't seem likely that he has access to a car. Using public transport would allow him to move around the city easily and undetected, particularly if he is using cash or cube to pay his fares. On my band's image of the map, I superimpose the subway lines and main bus routes. The Toronto subway is a pretty straightforward shape, a north-south line in the form of a somewhat misshapen U, and an east-west crossing it midpoint. Estimating the number of potential venues that are within easy walking distance of a station filters my list down to about 50 locations. Adding in bus routes increases that number to about 120. The doorbell on the shop rings and I look up. 
Nadia is standing in the doorway. I suddenly have a flashback to another coffee shop in another country, far, far away, and the first time that I saw her. It seems such a long time ago. Nadia is dressed casually but stylishly in a black leather jacket, grey turtleneck jumper and a pair of blue jeans. The red streak in her hair has been replaced by a blue one. I rise to my feet. She comes over and gives me a big hug, followed by a kiss on the lips. Tom, it's great to see you again, she says. She sounds like she might actually mean it. I had spent a good chunk of the flight from London thinking about what to say first when we met. I'd wanted a snappy one-liner to reproach her for ignoring all my phone calls and emails. Now that she's standing in front of me and seems actually pleased to see me, all of them vanish from my mind. And you, I say. Nadia goes and orders herself a cup of coffee. Then she comes and sits beside me in the booth, right beside me, close enough that her thigh is against mine. I clear my throat to focus my mind and then show her the map I've generated on my band. This is the size of the area that Max could potentially be in, I say, gesturing in a semicircle around Toronto, Lake Ontario taking up the other half of the circle. However, Based on his web searches, I suspect that he is keeping in the vicinity of public transport, bus or subway. Nadia nods. She leans over and takes a long look at the map, together with the list of the potential venue types that I'd compiled. Max won't want to work just anywhere, Nadia says, after some thought. He'll be looking for a fast, reliable Wi-Fi connection. He'll need somewhere comfortable to sit. Easy access to food and drink, plus toilets, would be bonuses. And he'll want a venue where he isn't being challenged every half hour to move on. That will narrow his choice considerably. I nod in agreement. Although all the venues on my list claim to have Wi-Fi, everyone knows that there's a big difference between marketing claims and reality. If we can get round and survey the venues, we should be able to eliminate a lot of sites. The doorbell rings again and Buckeridge enters. He's dressed in, I swear I'm not making this up, a tweed jacket-trouser combination complete with a cape. He looks as if he's about to go on a hunt with Sherlock Holmes in search of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Buckeridge comes over and greets us. Hello, hello, he booms. Welcome to my home country. He looks at Nadia and a puzzled expression moves over his face. You flew out ahead of Phaser, he asks. I suddenly realise that Buckeridge still has Nadia mentally tagged as a friend of Phaser's. That was how I'd introduced her to him originally, and I'd never gotten round to correcting that. I'm still not comfortable with having to confess that Max was doing freelance work on the side of being an employee of Dorg. I quickly step in before Nadia can say anything. Faser's flying over late today, hopefully, I say. She's coming over with her sister. Nadia agreed to get here as quickly as possible to help us in the meantime. Buckeridge nods, although the puzzled look doesn't completely disappear from his face. I show Buckeridge the map 
and give him an overview of our plan for narrowing the list of potential locations that Max might be using. Buckeridge nods approvingly. Sounds like a plan, he says. With three of us, we should be able to check each of these out in less than a couple of days. Let's get started then, says Nadia. We spend the rest of Monday checking out some of the possible places where Max might be working from. We split up so that we can cover as many venues as possible. We use Nadia's list of criteria to rate each of the locations. Wi-Fi speed and reliability, ease of working without interruption, and ease of access to amenities such as food and drink and a clean toilet. After a couple of visits, I establish an approach to doing the rating. On entry to the place, I do an initial test of the Wi-Fi performance via my band. I then talk to whoever is on duty manning the till or whatever and say that I have a term paper for university to write and would they mind if I spend a couple of hours here doing it. Their reaction tells me whether or not they are prepared to tolerate digital nomads. Finally, I do a second test of the Wi-Fi network to see if there's much variation with the first reading that I took. We meet up again at the end of the day, back in the coffee shop on Young Street. Between the three of us, we have managed to cover more than half of the locations on the list. A third of them have, despite their claims, no working Wi-Fi, so we are able to immediately rule them out. Another third score low on working comfort, due to either noise, lack of comfortable seats, or unwelcoming staff. These two we strike off our list. That leaves us with about 20 venues. Assuming the same proportion of viable venues among the sites that remain to be surveyed, I expect us to end with 40 locations to stake out. That's still a lot of ground to cover, but a lot better than the thousand plus that we started out with. I feel pleased with the day's progress. In the evening, I take the bus out to Pearson International and meet Faser and her sister off their flight from San Francisco. Faser's pregnancy has visibly progressed in the two and a half weeks since I last saw her. Her bump is more pronounced and her walking gait is now decidedly waddle-like. Faser comes up to me and gives me a hug. Thank you for getting here so quickly, she says. As I was delayed, it was comforting to know that you were able to get into Toronto so soon. She turns to introduce her sister. This is Mina, she says. You remember her from the wedding? Mina comes over and hugs me too. The last time I saw her, she was a teenager. She's grown since then and is now taller than her older sister. Her dark hair is longer too, although it is currently done up in a ponytail. It's good to see you again, cousin Tom, says Mina. I suddenly recall that, during the wedding reception, I had in jest suggested that I was now also part of Faser's family. Mina had taken great delight in teasing me about this gleefully calling me Cousin Tom for the rest of my visit. She clearly hasn't forgotten. Mina is now a student at a university in the Midwest studying third-year medicine. Unbeknownst to her mother, 
she has taken a leave of absence from her studies to help Faiza. On the bus back into the centre of Toronto, I tell Faiza and Mina about our progress. Both are keen to help with checking out the remaining venues in the morning. Once we reach downtown, the sisters check into the same budget hotel that Nadia and I am staying at. Buckeridge has opted to go up market and is staying at the Sheraton. We all gather for dinner that evening. It feels good to have all five of us around the same table. Faser still seems frosty towards Nadia, but Nadia appears either not to notice or chooses not to react. We have big days ahead of us, but I feel that, step by step, we're getting closer to Max. Chapter 30 Tuesday Morning First thing on Tuesday, we set out to survey the remaining locations. Buckeridge, Nadia and I head out by ourselves, with Mina and Faser partnering up. Faser can't move as fast as the rest of us, but she's still determined to do her share. Nadia and I spent Monday night together. I had a long list of things that I wanted to talk to her about, her ignoring of my repeated phone calls being item one. But in the end, we didn't spend a lot of time talking, if you get my meaning. Let's just say that we were very pleased to see each other and leave it at that. I have 15 locations to check out, all situated in the North York region of the city. The first two fail to pass the assessment, but the third looks much more promising. It's the North York Central Library. It's located near to the metro station, which itself is across from Toronto's Centre for the Arts. As I exit the metro station, the sun emerges from behind a bank of grey stratus clouds, and, for the first time since landing, I get to enjoy sunlight. The library is a large, multi-storey building with an open atrium area at the front. Stairs located on the right and left sides of the area lead to the upper floors. Rows of study desks are laid out on each of the floors. It's still relatively early, and the majority of the desks are unoccupied. Personally, I've always enjoyed being in libraries. I think it's the sense of organised calm that libraries exude, or at least the bits of them that are situated away from the children's section. Even though I live in an era where I can instantly search for and download any book onto a device, there's still something special about being able to walk into a library and physically browse the collection of paper books. As I am about to start my Wi-Fi check, I freeze. Ahead of me, hunched at one of the desks in the atrium, I see a familiar set of shoulders. I quietly edge round the desks so that I can get a look from the side. It's Max. He's shaved his hair and has grown a scraggy beard, but it's most definitely him. Max is sitting, or more accurately slumping, at the desk, his eyes locked onto the screen of his laptop. A notebook lies open on the desk beside him. I hesitate, thinking about what to do next. Given the pains that Max has taken to hide his movements, I'm not sure how he is going to react to my turning up. Calling in reinforcements would seem to be a judicious idea. 
I decide to message Nadia and Bakarich. I don't want to bother Faiza and her sister until we have a better idea as to Max's reasons for disappearing. I text Nadia and Bakarich. Max spotted in North York Central Library. Come help. Nadia replies immediately. On my way. Ten min. Bakarich also responds. There in about thirty minutes. I glance at the clock on the wall. Damn. Half an hour is a long time to wait. I consider what to do in the meantime. I don't want to lose sight of him, but equally I want to maintain a low profile so that he doesn't spot me before we're ready. Looking round, I spy a suitable vantage spot on the second floor. It's out of the way, but has a good view of the entire library floor. Should Max move, I'll be able to keep track of him. I casually saunter over to the stairs, taking care to keep my back turned to Max, and then run up the steps as quick as I dare. Just as I'm settling down at my vantage spot, I see two policemen enter the library. With a start, I realise that it's Tweedledum and Tweedledee. They're dressed as Canadian policemen rather than in CHP uniforms, but it's definitely them. The is looking at something on a large tablet device. What is it? His tablet angles towards me for a moment, and despite the distance, I can see a face on the screen. A picture. A picture of Max. I have to act. I spring to my feet and run to the stairs on the far side of the library, out of view from the men. I have to get to Max before the men find him. I'm not sure what they plan to do to Max when they find him. This is a public space, after all, and there are plenty of people about but I am sure that they don't have his best interests at heart. I race down the stairs, three steps at a time. A librarian, coming up the stairs, gives me the kind of dirty look that only librarians can give, but says nothing. Once at the bottom of the stairs, I run between the tall shelves of books. I stop just before the end of the shelves, where the open area is filled with desks. I look out. The men are casually but systematically walking by each of the rows of desks, surreptitiously checking out everyone working. They are still five rows away from Max. I pull up the collar of my jacket and pull on the wool hat I have in my pocket. Then, moving as casually yet rapidly as I can, I walk down the aisle of desks until I'm standing behind Max. Max is still buried in his laptop screen, oblivious to everything going on around him. I sit down at the empty desk beside Max. I lean over and catch a brief glimpse of Max's laptop screen. His email client is open. Max, I whisper into his ear. It's me, Tom. We have to go, right now. Trust me. Max turns to face me. His face registers first surprise, then shock. Tom? he says. We have to go now, I say firmly. There are men looking for you. Max looks past me to where the two policemen are standing. They are now only two rows away. He gulps nervously. Sure, he says. He quickly closes his laptop and picks it up together with his notebook. We start to move from the desk. 
Walk normally, I whisper. Don't look back, whatever you do. We reach the end of the row and turn towards the main entrance. Out of the corner of my eye, I see the men stop. They point towards us. Run! I shout to Max. Fast as you can! We sprint for the doors. I hear chairs being knocked over behind us and some shouts. I daren't slow down to look behind us, but I presume that the men are after us. We race out of the building. Head to the metro! I shout to Max. I lead the way and rush towards the steps of the subway. We gallop down the stairs and race through the ticket barriers. We rush down the further flight of steps and find ourselves at platform level. A train is just pulling into the station. As soon as the doors open, we get in. The carriage is crowded, but we are able to find a couple of seats and sit down. We wait for what seems like an age for the rest of the passengers to board. Finally, the doors close and the train departs. I let out a long sigh of relief. Max turns to me. Tom, what on earth are you doing here? he asks. Looking for you, I reply. We've been out of our minds with worry, Faser especially. Max visibly flinches at the mention of his wife's name. Faser is here? he asks. Yes, I say. She's here with Mina. She's been through hell these past few weeks. Yes, I can imagine, Max says quietly, lowering his eyes. But you have to believe me when I say that I'm doing all of this to protect her and the baby. Max, I say, I don't know what you've gotten yourself into, but let me help you. Max nods. Yes, okay, he, he says. There's so much to tell you. His voice trails off and his eyes widen. He is looking past me down the train carriage. His hands grab the sleeve of my jacket in fear. I turn and follow his gauge. The two policemen have just entered the far end of the carriage and are moving towards us. Fortunately, they haven't yet spotted us. At that moment, the driver comes on the tannoy, announcing that the train is arriving at Finch, the end of the line. Everyone gets up to leave the carriage, blocking the path of the policeman. We rise too and try to get into the thickest part of the crowd to obscure ourselves from the men. The train pulls into the station and stops. The doors open. We get out, still within the throng of passengers. The opposite platform is empty, so we have little choice but head for the surface. We emerge onto Young Street. The pavements are wide here, with relatively few pedestrians around. I take a moment to look behind me. The men are running up the stairs towards us. I give Max a push and we start to run again. We run along the street until we get to the interchange with Hendon. Not waiting for the lights to change, we run onto the road, through the onrushing cars. I hear horns blare and tyres squeal as we dash through the traffic. Somehow we make it to the other side. We run along Hendon towards a group of high-story flats. Behind us, I hear more tyre squealing and horn blaring. The men must be crossing the road as well. Iris, I shout at my band. Call Buckeridge now! Iris says nothing. I repeat the instruction. Iris finally responds. 
I'm sorry, Mr. Jenkins, she says into my ear. No voice or data connectivity available right now. What the hell, I think to myself. Are the men jamming the nearby cell towers somehow? Or do they have accomplices elsewhere doing this? Despite my recent gym visits, I'm already puffing and panting from running flat out. So is Max. Although he's carrying less weight than I am, it's clear that he's not in great physical shape either. There's little chance that we will be able to outrun our pursuers. I look around, desperately trying to figure out what to do next. Down an alleyway, I spot a bicycle leaning against a wall. Transport. I gesture to Max at the bike, and we run down the alleyway towards it. The mountain bike appears to be unlocked when we reach it. That's the good news. The bad news is that it's on the other side of a tall metal chain-link fence, about two metres tall. There doesn't appear to be any gate or other way through it. Without hesitation, I bend down and clasp my hands together to form a step. Climb on me, I order Max. You get over first. Max does as he is told. He clambers onto me and then, with no little amount of scrambling, he's able to pull himself over the fence. He lands on the other side. Now it's my turn. I take a couple steps backward and launch myself at the fence, jumping as high as I can. I grab some of the chain links and start to haul myself towards the top. But as I do this, I feel my feet being grabbed from below. Two sets of powerful hands drag me from the fence, and I fall to the ground awkwardly. Instantly, someone jumps on my chest, pinning me to the ground. I feel a small prick on the side of my neck, and the world goes dark. Chapter 31 Sometime later... I don't know how long, I become aware of something bright moving slowly from side to side. I try to focus my eyes, but fail. I try again, and fail again. I'm pretty sure, though, that it's a light. Either it's the blurriest light in existence, or there is something wrong with my eyes, or my brain, or both. After a bit, my vision improves. The light takes on a form. It's a bare light bulb of the type that I thought had been banned from manufacture a decade ago. It swings gently from side to side. I realise that I'm sitting down in a chair. No, make that bound to a chair. I have a rope tightly wrapped around my chest and both of my arms are tied to the arms of the chair. Although I can't see them, my ankles feel similarly restrained. Someone doesn't want me to be leaving any time soon. Still groggy, I look around me. I'm in a large room, illuminated only by the single light bulb hung from the ceiling. The walls are featureless, made of concrete. I don't see any windows. The floor and ceiling are also concrete. I get a strong sense that I'm deep underground. To my right is a closed door. It's made of iron and looks sturdy. I don't see a bolt or lock on it. I presume they are on the other side. I shake my head and make an effort to clear my mental haze. The last thing I remember was helping Max get over the fence, hopefully to safety. Then came the hands that hauled me down from the fence and the prick to the neck. Then here. 
I hear a rumbling sound. It begins in the distance and comes closer. It grows louder and louder until it seems to be vibrating the very concrete of the walls. Then it moves away again, growing fainter and fainter until fading completely. Aside from me, the chair and the light bulb, the room is empty. I notice a few graffiti marks on one of the walls, but nothing that would give me a clue as to where I'm imprisoned. Then I spot my band and earpiece lying in the corner of the room. They're smashed beyond repair, looking as if someone's taken a sledgehammer to them. There's no way that I'm going to be able to use them to call for help, even if I could figure a way to get out of this chair. I try to jog the chair, but it refuses to budge. I try pushing it backwards, lifting myself up onto the tips of my toes. The front legs lift slightly off the ground. I keep pushing back, further and further, until I realise that if I did manage to tip it over, there's a good chance that I'd smash my skull on the concrete floor. I lower the chair legs back to the floor again. It suddenly dawns on me that I'm not gagged. Although I'm securely bound by chest, hand and foot, my captors haven't seen fit to put anything in my mouth to prevent me from shouting and screaming. This seems surprising. They must be confident that no one will hear me. Maybe I'm in the basement of the Toronto School for the Deaf. And perhaps they need me to be capable of talking. I try to wriggle my hands, but fail. My wrists feel like they're cased in steel. Whoever tied these knots certainly knew their craft. Another rumbling comes from above, this time from the opposite wall. It too passes overhead and then moves off into the distance again before disappearing. I start to think about what I should say to my captors when I get a chance. It would be tempting to start with the this has all been a horrible misunderstanding line, but I'm certain they won't believe it. They've seen me with Max, and before that with Nadia, so I've no chance of being able to pretend to be just an innocent bystander. I ponder trying to bluff them, telling them that they are all in terrible trouble and that the place is surrounded by armed police. Given that I don't even know where this place is, I doubt that I could sell them on this. Perhaps I should just ask them why they are holding me. Deep down, I already know the answer to that. They want Max. They want me to tell them where they can find Max. After a while, I lose track of all time. My only companion, the light bulb, continues to swing back and forth. There are eight more rumble sounds from above me. Three from one side and five from the other. Eventually, I hear footsteps outside the door. There's a scraping sound, as if someone is drawing something back, the bolt perhaps, and the door opens. Two men come in. They're both dressed casually in dark-hued colours. One of them is well over six foot tall, with short-cropped, military-style hair. The hair is beginning to show flecks of grey at the temples, so I guess that he is in his late thirties or early forties. The other man, much shorter, is perhaps in his early fifties. He has thinning hair with the bald patch covered with a comb-over. Ugly. Both men look serious. 
Hello, says the tall individual. He speaks with a strong Slavic accent. Please forgive us for the poor quality of your accommodation, but this is the best we could do at short notice. His words are pronounced very precisely, every syllable spoken with care. I grant. The man moves towards me and puts his hand under my chin. He pulls my head up so that I'm looking straight into his face. How are you feeling? he asks. Sore? Thirsty, no doubt. Emil, get our guest some water, please. The other man nods and leaves the room. He returns quickly with a battered tin cup filled with water. He holds it in front of my mouth and I glug it down in one go. The man takes the cup out of the room and returns again, this time with a wooden chair. He places it carefully about a metre in front of me. The tall man sits down in the chair. He pulls a pair of reading spectacles out of his jacket pocket. He puts them on, then pulls a small notebook out of another pocket. He opens it at a particular page and looks at it for a while. Then he removes the spectacles again and looks me straight in the eyes. That's better, I'm sure, he says. Nothing like a drink of cool, clean water to clear the head, yes? I nod. My mouth is feeling a lot better, but it's still difficult to speak. Another rumble appears overhead. The man looks up at the ceiling and waits for the sound to fade before continuing. Now to business, says the man. First, introductions. My name is Christoph, and my associate is Hemil. Hemil, now leaning casually against one of the walls, gives me a wave of acknowledgement. Second, we have some questions for you, Christoph continues. Answer them to our satisfaction, and you can go. I finally find my voice. What kind of questions? I ask raspily. Just three simple questions. Nothing too difficult to answer, says Christoph soothingly. We could be done in ten minutes, and it would all be over. We'd release you, safe and sound. He clears his throat. Right, let us begin, he says. Question number one. Who are you here with? No one. I'm here on my own, I lie. I don't want to drag Nadia, Buckeridge, or most especially Faser into this mess. Christoph says nothing. He looks at me with a long, unflinching stare. Question number two, says Christoph. What is Kronos? Kronos? I say. I think it's the code name for Cube, but that's all I know. Another long pause. Finally, Christoph speaks again. Question number three. Where is Max Whitting now? I don't know, I say. I had only just found Max myself when your guys started to chase me. I don't know where he is now or what he's doing. Again, Christoph says nothing in response. He just sits in his seat and stares at me impassively. Then he rises from his seat. 
I regret to inform you that your answers have been wholly unsatisfactory, he says. I therefore cannot release you. He gestures towards Hemil. I'm going to leave you in the very capable hands of my associate. When I return, I will ask you the questions again. I hope your answers then will be more satisfactory. He strides from the room, the door closing soundly behind him. Hemil comes towards me. It's time we got better acquainted, he says, with a grin. Chapter 32 Hemil leaves the room briefly, returning with a collapsible table and a large, old-looking leather bag. He sets the table up and places the bag carefully on it. I'd like to introduce you to a family heirloom, he says. It's been in my family for nearly a century and a half. He pats the bag reverently. This is one of the original Gladstone bags, Hemil says proudly. Named after one of your country's longest-serving prime ministers. Very tough, very durable. Made from the finest ox leather. Excellent craftsmanship. Leather is nearly 150 years old, yet still not one sign of splitting. He sweeps his hand over the length of the bag. See how strong the stitching is, still, he says. This bag was in daily use for almost 40 years, and not one stitch has broken. He then points at the monogrammed initials on the bag side. J. S. K. They are embossed in gold on the leather in elegant handcrafted letters. Will anything of ours today live on like this into the middle of the 22nd century? asks Emil. I think not, he says, answering his own question and then sighing. He pauses, seemingly lost in thought. Then he seems to shake himself and continues. But enough of the bag, Emil says. You're wondering, no doubt, what is inside. He opens the clasp on the top and reaches in. Gladstone bags, very versatile, he says, still feeling inside. Can be used for holding lots of things. Documents, clothes, scientific instruments. But this one was used for... He pulls out two hand saws, a couple scalpels, and a much larger saw. 19th century surgical kit, says Hamil. Everything a doctor needed for surgery in the 1880s. He picks up one of the saws. Still sharp, even now, see? Hamil says, running his finger across the blade. Back then, you see, he continues, there weren't any anaesthetics. In the 19th century, the only rule of surgery was, get it done, fast. He reaches into the bag again, searching. All they could give patients back then was a whiskey to numb the pain, Hamil says, still fumbling around in the bag. And this. He pulls something out from the bag and holds it in his open hand, right in front of me. I look. It's a bullet, a large calibre round. There are marks all over it. Patients were given this to bite on, Hamil continues. It may have helped with the pain but only a little, I think. I now realise that what I thought were marks are actually teeth imprints. As you know, says Hamil, continuing, in the 19th century there was no penicillin, 
no antibiotics of any kind. Doctors had no drugs to fight infection with. Often the only thing they could do was to amputate the parts of the body infected. Foot, leg, arm, hand, whatever. He pauses for a moment, then continues. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I have something else that I want to show you. He reaches into the bag again and pulls something else out. A small leather case tied up with a strap. Hemil undoes the strap and unrolls the case. Inside is a large glass syringe. Excuse me for a moment, he says. He leaves the room and I hear his footprints disappear into the distance. No more than thirty seconds later, I hear the footsteps return. Hemil re-enters, this time carrying a thermos. Accompanying him are Dumb and Dee, still dressed in their police uniforms. Hamil places the thermos on the table and unscrews the cup. He then twists the cap of the thermos and pours something from the thermos into the cup. He then fills the syringe very carefully from the cup. From my vantage point, it's hard to see what it is. All I can tell is that it's some form of colourless liquid. And so we get started, says Hamil. He nods to Dam and Dee. They walk over and stand either side of me. Then they grab hold of my head. I try to struggle, but my head feels like it's caught in a vice. Hemil walks towards me, holding the syringe. I begin to panic, pulling at the restraints on my wrists. It's useless, however. I simply can't move. My breathing becomes ragged. I can feel my heart hammering against my ribcage. Ah, are you going to drug me? I stammer. Hamil says nothing. He walks over and stands to the left of me. He leans in close and I can feel his breath on my cheek. I feel the cold metal of the syringe as he presses it against the entrance to the ear canal. Then I sense wetness as he injects the contents into the canal itself. Cold wetness. Within a couple of seconds I feel dizzy. The room starts to spin and I feel nauseous. I struggle to focus my eyes, but I've lost control. I try to close them in order to stop the spinning sensation and find that I can't. The room continues to spin and I have to fight hard to repress the urge to throw up. Finally, the spinning stops and I regain control. Hamil stands over me, shining a light into first one eye, then the other. One down, one to go, he says, patting me on the leg. He returns to the table and refills the syringe. Then he repeats the procedure, this time into my other ear. This second time is much, much worse. The dizziness is far more intense and the vertigo overwhelming. I vomit all over the front of my sweater and trousers. I cry out in distress, but the men only laugh at me. Finally, the world writes itself. Dumb and Dee release my head and I slump forward in the seat. Hemil looks at his watch. Time for another talk with the boss, he says. He and the other two leave the room, closing the door behind them. I sit alone in the room, slumped in the chair, feeling utterly powerless. Puke stains are all over my top and trousers. I must be quite a sight. Finally, there are footsteps outside again. Christoph re-enters. He sits down in the chair. I struggle to sit up straight in my seat 
and regain at least a little self-dignity. Christoph stares at me, his gaze unflinching. I shall ask the questions again, he says. I hope that you will give more satisfactory answers this time. I grant. Question number one, Christoph begins. Who are you here with? Five of us are here looking for Max, I say. There's me, Faser, Max's wife, Mina, Bakarij and Nadia. Christoph says nothing. He just stares at me, silent. Question number two, says Christoph, finally. What is Kronos? I don't know for sure, I answer. I think that it's an acronym, made up of the surnames of the people behind Cube. I don't know more than that. Again, silence. Christoph's face shows no reaction to my answers. Question number three. Where is Max Whitting now? I don't know, I sob. I don't know. You have to believe me. I just don't know. I end up half shouting, half sobbing my response. Christoph gets up. Your answers are still unsatisfactory, he says without emotion. He goes over to the bag and looks into it. He pulls out what appears to be a bolt cutter and places it on the table alongside the other instruments. When Hemiel returns, he will remove two of your fingers with this, he says, pointing at the bolt cutters. Then I will ask you the questions again. I tell you, I don't know any more, I bellow in a combination of fury and despair. Christoph ignores my outburst and leaves the room. I start sobbing afresh. My situation seems absolutely hopeless. I'm completely at the mercy of these two psychopaths who seem convinced that I know more than I'm letting on. How can I convince them of the truth? That was episode 5 of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at chronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License.